You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, founder and principal attorney at Sapphire Legal, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. On today's show, we're continuing our discussion about arbitration with plaintiff's employment law attorney, Neil Pedersen. Neil is my former law partner, and we're going to be talking about a passionate subject for both of us, inherent bias in the arbitration process. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Welcome back to our listeners, and welcome to Workplace Perspective, Neil Pedersen. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you for letting me be here. You know, I have very strong feelings about this subject, so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I do, and I'm very excited to talk about it with you. But before we get started, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your practice? Sure. I'm uh, an attorney of almost 30 years. I've spent a great majority of that in uh, representing employees against employers. I have a small firm, about 10 employees here in, in Irvine, California, where we um, represent employees against employers in areas of discrimination, harassment, retaliation, some leave issues, and some wage and hour issues. All right. Awesome. I do know that firsthand. We worked together for how long? Oh, I, I, it's been maybe eight, eight, nine, ten, ten years, years, maybe. Yeah. Ten years? Yeah. yeah. Very exciting. All right. Well, on our last episode of Workplace Perspective, I had talked with business and employment law attorney Andrea Perez about the recent Epic Systems v. Lewis case and its impact on the employer and employee relationship when it comes to arbitration agreements. And Andrea filled us in on the changes brought about by Epic Systems, of course, mainly the fact that employers can now include class action waivers in arbitration agreements. But I wanted to continue the discussion with you about the arbitration process, because I know you feel very strongly about one particular aspect of arbitration, and that's the inherent bias in the overall process. So true. There are several reasons why a plaintiff who wants a fair hearing on their dispute would want to avoid the arbitration process, but the most invidious or insidious of those are the fact that the arbitrators, the people that are actually the ones that are making the decision at the end, as opposed to a jury, have very strong biases that do actually cause uh, plaintiffs to lose more and to be awarded less money when they do win. It's amazing, isn't it? And I know we have some statistics we're going to talk about to back all that up, but you and I have talked many times about the arbitration industry and how its influence has grown over the years. And for me, at least, I think what we're seeing now is almost a true pinnacle, really, of influence and invulnerability almost when it comes to the arbitration process, especially with, you know, the draining of union and collective power that we're seeing, especially in light of Epic Systems. And it seems to me that the modern workplace really is shifting from a focus to a focus on individual rights, kind of separating the individual from the collective. Collect. I kind of say I went all Star Trek on them. I didn't know. Well, you and I could do that all day, couldn't That's we? Right. But. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we won't we won't bore everybody with our Trekkie talk. Yeah. But why don't we start the the discussion with you explaining just a little bit about the two most significant um, rights that employees give up when they do sign an arbitration agreement with an employer? Sure. Uh, the first is seems somewhat obvious, and that is you're giving up the constitutional right to a jury trial. There's a reason we have jury trials, and that's because it allows wrongs to be viewed and determined by a group of our peers, by people in the community. And while everybody has biases within the jury system, we have a way to root out some of those biases through what's called the voir dire process. You still end up with jurors that have biases. Everybody has biases. But when you end up with a jury of 12 or 9 people, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, those biases are somewhat evened out because you have some that are biased in one way and some that are biased in another. Judges and lawyers have biases, too. And the problem is, is that when you have an arbitrator who has been not necessarily selected by you, but are the the one left over or the two left over right. after the process, they have biases too, and you have a single person who's making the decision. And that is that is not necessarily the best thing, especially since those people have a education level and an experience level that is very different than the rest of our community. And so those biases can be dangerous and can uh, lead to some very bad results. Well, I just think it's interesting. That, for me, now I know there's a second inherent now that we have epic, epic systems, but mm-hmm. for me, that has always been a huge problem. Not, you know, in the cons- in the employment aspect, yes, but for me also in the consumer industry and all of that, it just... It's a constitutional right. There's a reason that we have that. It's, it's you know, a bedrock of our judicial system and the reason that it works for all the reasons you just said. So that to me is always a sticking point. But now there's another right that you're kind of giving up when it comes to that. Sure. The, people have heard of class action lawsuits, but we, we call them in the legal profession collective actions because there are different types of collective actions. They're very important in the air, in the in the circumstance where you have an employer that's engaging in unlawful conduct that is causing some harm, but not enough harm to motivate uh, qualified attorneys to spend a great deal of time and money to root out the evil, as I would call it, uh, <laughs> the, the unlawful conduct, uh, and prove it to be unlawful conduct. And so where you have many people being hurt uh, less, uh, let's say, uh, an employer is causing less than $1,000 of harm to every employee in the organization, but nonetheless is acting unlawfully and costing those employees up to $1,000 of their hard-earned money. It's going to be hard to find an attorney willing to take and fight against an employer for $1,000. But if you have 15,000 employees that are being harmed at that same amount, a collective action is the only way that you're going to be able to root out this unlawful conduct and prove it to be what it is and change what's happening within the workplace. The problem is is that with these recent decisions, the Supreme Court has, has time and again made more and more inroads into this idea that you can't bring a collective action if you've signed this class action waiver as part of your arbitration agreement. And it doesn't make sense to do 15,000 separate arbitrations. So the wrongdoing keeps going on and there's no way to really resolve those issues. Right. You know, Andrea and I kind of touched on that too, the idea that, you know, nobody likes class action. And and we kind of chuckled over the fact that, you know, no, no offense to our defense colleagues, but, you know, the joke always being, well, who makes money in a class action? The, the attorneys. attorneys. Yeah. But 
on taking that aside and the idea that all lawsuits are bad and you know that whole idea mm-hmm. collective action can do some good and it you know it used to be a very union thing but even non-union workplaces benefited from the National Labor Relations Act that protects protects collective activity, like banding together. And I'm sure between the two of us, we could come up with some very successful class actions that were more than just making money for some, you know, for some firm or something. They actually did some good and actually changed the work environment and made a positive impact. Um, They're probably fewer than we'd like to think, but I think that they're out there. Now, you mentioned the Supreme Court's inroads that it's making on the on the idea of it. And one of the, the things I want to point out is the U.S. Supreme Court's working theory tends to be, and I found this great quote from, it's a case from 1985, but then it was reiterated again in 1991. And if we get to it, there's another quote that sort of balances this as well. It kind of says the same thing from 2013. But basically, the quote is, uh, quote, by agreeing to arbitrate a statutory claim, a party does not forego the substantive rights afforded by the statute, it only submits their resolution to an arbitral rather than a judicial forum. <laughs> what, what the court is doing is they're putting on blinders. Uh, Absolutely, right? Because, I mean, that's technically true. Right. But it's not that simple. No. It's really not that simple, like the things you've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the problem with that approach is that... They're ignoring the fact that the the other forum that they're they're moving these matters into have the decision makers in a situation where there is inherent bias, which is what we're talking about here today. Right. Well, let's expand on that because okay. what's what's <clears throat> happened in the interim in the interim is this continual buffering of that concept by the court has really created this cottage industry of arbitration. And that's where the inherent bias comes in. So why don't you talk a little bit about what we mean when we say inherent bias in the arbitration process? Okay, well, I think to understand inherent bias, you have to understand how an arbitrator gets selected. So very briefly, when a party has agreed to engage in arbitration, they either have agreed to do so through a particular agency that that has a bunch of uh, arbitrators working for it, or they've agreed to uh, arbitrate to be selected later, so to speak. They would right. select uh, either JAMS or ADR services, something that, that later. In each situation, the parties are given a list of arbitrators, and you can deselect from that list several, but you're still left with a few, and you rank those, and then the entity then uh, tells you who your arbitrator is going to be. In that deselection process, there is, uh, there's research that's done. I research every arbitrator that's on a list that's of given course. to me, and, yeah. and the defense does the same thing. Right. And unfortunately, the arbitrators know that. They know that they're not going to get work if they won't be selected by either side in that process. If they're the ones that always get struck from the list, they're not working because they only make money when they get selected as an arbitrator. It is that process, therefore, that motivates employers to not be too extreme. Uh, in other words, we're not going to award punitive damages. We're not going to award very high emotional distress damages because the, the repeat um, users of these arbitration systems are the companies, not the employee. This is the only time the employee will ever be in that system. But an employer may have 15, 20, 30, 100 
different arbitrations that would go before that arbitrator over a career, and therefore that's what creates that inherent bias. Right, and that that's the re- the repeat player sort of aspect of it. Right. Now, I know you're saying these things, but I know there's also statistics that back up what you're saying. This isn't just a you know a personal thing you have. Right. Although you do feel passionately about I, it. I do feel passionately <laughs> about it, but in part because of these studies. There was a study done by a statistician at Cornell University where he examined the outcomes of almost 4,000 arbitrations in the employment arena. He looked at all arbitrations in the employment arena administered by AAA, the American Arbitration Association, in the United States between January of 2003 and December of 2007. The employee win rate was a mere 21.4%, which is substantially lower than the employee win rate in litigations outside of arbitration. But even worse, for those employees that did win within the arbitration process, both the median rate and the mean were both substantially lower. In other words, the amount of money awarded by the arbitrator to the employee was substantially lower than comparable uh, litigations uh, that uh, took place in in, in, tri- in a trial, not an arbitrator. This, if you want to look it up, you can just Google uh, Cornell arbitration study, and the author was a gentleman by the name of Alexander Colvin. More recently, there was one of our colleagues here in L.A. at uh, the Jeannie Harrison Law Firm that provided some additional statistics based upon the information that these arbitration providers are required to provide to the public. And those numbers, the numbers were were not very much different than what I just talked about. In AAA, between 2012 and 2016, a plaintiff was awarded a judgment only 14.5% of the time. Wow. At ADR services during the same period of time, the plaintiff won only 36.2% of the time. Interestingly, though, at Judicate West, another ADR provider, the plaintiff won 62.5% of the time. So part of what that tells us is that you really need to be careful about which provider that you use when you end up going into arbitration. Interesting. I find those statistics amazing. Yeah. And I also find this idea that, well, it's not, and it goes beyond just picking, right? So once you've chosen, once you've gotten through that process and you're aware of those, there's also some other things that I don't think people are just really truly aware of the fact that arbitration is completely privatized yes yes it's uh it's a way for uh the employer to place a lid on the unlawful conduct and make sure nobody else finds out about it i understand from the employer's perspective why they would want that but we've seen over the years how that type of ability to put the lid on unlawful conduct has affected, for instance, the Me Too movement recently. Right, how absolutely. it's been a it's been a quiet secret, but it hasn't gotten out to the rest of the world. The same is true with race discrimination, harassment, retaliation, all of the things that an employee ends up dealing with. And the employer loves to use arbitration to put the lid on that, keep it private, because it's not a public proceeding. And um, in so doing, they prevent other employees from knowing that the employer has been found out and has has been engaging in this unlawful conduct. Right. And then there's the, you know, there is the publicity aspect of it. And fairly, of course, to look at both sides, which is what we do in Workplace Perspective, (laughs) you know, there are instances where it may be reasonable for an employee to want a private setting for whatever the dispute might be. Right. Not particularly common, maybe not as common as it is for an employer, but we've both seen circumstances where 
an employee might benefit from that or might feel more comfortable in that forum. Sure. But I think that it's just the, just the idea that I'm not sure that people will co- we'll talk about this when we come back from break in, in a little while about this this idea of mandatory and the the ability to negotiate and all that but there's a few other aspects and we're just going to run out of time here first to go to break but there's also it's rarely appealable it's very limited circumstances right right? yes absolutely and it's expensive It, it is in fact it's expensive for the employer that's really the only thing that really I hope motivates an employer not to opt into the arbitration process. I've seen employers pay well into the six figures, $100,000 for their arbitration fees. Uh, just recently, one of the uh, my opponents was uh, required to was going to be required to pay $55,000 for their initial deposit and they elected not to arbitrate because they saw it was going to, going to be so expensive. So we're back in trial now. Right. So very quickly, before we go to break, just explain a little bit, just very quickly, the difference. So if you file in court, it's what now, a 400 and some? Four, yeah, four or $500, so initial filing, filing fee. Filing fee, right. And then if you have certain motions along the way, they're going to be filing fees of, of less than $100. In arbitration, especially in employment arbitration, the good news for the employee is that the employer has to pay for the arbitrator's costs. Uh, the employee may have to pay for some initial starting startup fee, but the lion's share of those costs are going to be borne by the employer uh, through that process. Yeah, so it just it, that can just really add up, and it yeah. needs to be a risk management issue. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, okay. and when we come back, some hopeful thoughts for employees and Neil's perspective on the future of arbitration agreements. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds, and most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmin, who was living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach. Or if that resume was from someone who worked 12 hour shifts at the recycling company with my dad, who's 72. That taught me a work ethic that I carry with me every day. We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone growing up where I did A lot of things could have gotten in the way of my goals, but I learned to push through, and that's what I bring to work every day. So maybe it's time we look beyond the resume and look to grads of life. Discover new ways to develop great talent that are so much more than what's on paper at gradsoflife.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. Learn everything you need to know about the new legislative and regulatory changes for 2019 by joining Sapphire Legal and Owen Dunn Insurance on January 15th for our annual 2019 Employment Law Update. Visit our website at sapphirelegal.com for more details or call us at 949-535-5266. We're back and before we go in, I have a question for y'all. Is your employee handbook current or (gasps) non-existent? Don't worry, (laughs) Sapphire Legal can help start the new year legally compliant by joining us on December 13th, 2018 for another Sapphire Legal Employee Handbook Workshop. More details and registration information on our website at sapphirelegal.com or you can contact us for more details at 949-535-5266. All right, welcome back everyone. We're talking with plaintiff's employment law attorney Neil Pedersen and his perspective on inherent bias in the arbitration process. In my opinion... At a base level, equality and trust in bargaining really relies on three things, neutrality, expertise, and fairness. Okay. okay? So in your opinion, 
Can that actually be achieved in a workplace setting where the terms of arbitration are pre-printed and they're presented in some instances, not all, in a more or less take it or leave it scenario? Never. It can't, right? No, so what's and, and the, the answer? The employers are, are so motivated to keep it in this secret private process uh, where they're, they know that if even if they are hit with an award, they're going to be hit with less of an award than if they're uh, in front of a jury. There'd be no reason for them to want to uh, have equality in that process. Right. Right. So what's the fix? What what can what can we do? We can. I've got all kinds of ideas running around my head, but I want to hear yours. I'm a little more fatalistic. <laughs> I, I, I believe that the only way, the only fix, will come from federal legislators. And the reason I say that is they're the only ones that have the ability to significantly modify the FAA, also known as the Federal Arbitration Act. It's the FAA that says that arbitration should be favored, and it's the that provision of the FAA that the Supreme Court constantly runs back to, to say that we're going to favor arbitration because federal public policy says we must favor it. There's been a little bit of inroads, for instance, in a, in a bill several years ago related to federal contracting, a provision was placed in there that said that the, these people contracting with the federal government may not have a mandatory arbitration clause. But we need something like that to allow it to be not necessarily mandated that there be no arbitration, but at least some law that says that the employee should be able to choose whether they wish to have an arbitration clause or not. That's really the only true fix. I, I'm with you. I think so, too. And I just, I'm just not sure how it's going to happen, because even I just read a recent... I can't remember the case, but there was a recent article I read that said California tried something. I think it was something that wasn't signed by the governor. It actually was oh. signed. And when he signed it, he said, this may have some problems because he knows it's going to be preempted by the FAA. Yeah. So yeah. maybe that was the article I was reading because mm -hmm. they were talking about preemption because even through the Federal Arbitration Act can come in and say, no, no, if the state law disfavors arbitration, then we trump it from the right. federal law and we can, mm -hmm. you know, we can... We can say, no, no, you can't right. do that. So what is it that you think employees can do to make themselves be better prepared to enter into workplace arbitration agreements? Well, first of all, if they have the opportunity to, they should opt out. Some employers do give that opportunity with, at the beginning of the, the uh, agreement, maybe at the beginning of employment. So the employee needs to know opt out because they can always agree to go back into arbitration right, if they and want to. Right, and that's a good point. I don't think people ought to realize that. You know, employers are feared of it. But again, there are certain circumstances where an employee might want to say, okay, mm -hmm. I'll do it for whatever reason that might be. I recently had a client who had, it was a very sensitive issue, and we wanted to do it through a private arbitration, understanding up front that we had less of a chance to win and we would win less, but it was still a more favorable venue for, right. for this particular client. Sure. And I love that informed, uh, for me, it's all about the relationships now, right? And I loved what that informed conversation can do for the workplace relationship. Mm -hmm. Other than this, take it or leave it, mandatory arbitration, you want a job, sign it. You don't, I'll go find five of the people who will. Right. And that's truly what it is. People yeah. have to sign it and then they're, they're stuck with it. I, I would want them, the employees out there to understand that just because they've signed an employment agreement that has an arbitration clause, it doesn't mean they're forced to arbitrate. There may be options. Many times in my career, I've been able to challenge an arbitration clause. The one way that we've been left to challenge arbitration is, is what we call a contract challenge. In other words, the contract that contained that provision 
Was it unconscionable or was it a failure of consideration or a failure of meeting of the minds, basic contract principles? And if we can prove that it's unconscionable or a failure of meeting of the minds, we can invalidate that arbitration provision and keep the matter in in state or federal court. Right. I remember being quite successful at that for a couple of years. In fact, you remember we used to call Dan, our former partner, Dan Heck, the arbitration killer. That's he right. He had quite the reputation. And, That's right. And the firm had a great case against uh, it was Ralphs. Ralphs. Metters versus Ralphs. Yes. That was 10 years ago. Amazing, yeah. isn't it? But that was one that, that did good. It really, the way that Ralphs was having people sign the arbitration was not completely fair. And the case prompted them to change throughout California the way that they handled their arbitration agreements. So right, I think was, we did some good. Yeah, that was one of those cases where the the employer required people to report their workplace discrimination on a form, but at the bottom of the form in fine print, the employee, to submit their complaint, had to agree to the arbitration provision. And, and the court said, no, 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 we're not going to, we're not going to let you slip something over on the employee. And right. So yeah. There, there are ways to challenge these. And so anybody who has an employment agreement with an arbitration clause really should uh, uh, not think all is lost. Another reason is because you can still win an arbitration. I've, I've right. handled many cases where we haven't been able to get out of arbitration. You're just walking an uphill road. Right. Well, there's hope then. See, that appeals there to is. me. Yes. I'm, the, I'm the half glass full kind of gal. <laughs> well, I, I want to say, Neil, thank you so much for coming and talk to us. I know that there's so much more to say on this subject. We oh, go yeah. on all day, but we won't put our listeners through that. I do want to thank you for joining me and sharing your really unique perspective on oh, this important bet. topic. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Neil or his practice, you can find him on the web at PedersonLaw.com. That's P-E-D-E-R-S-E-N Law.com. You can also connect with Neil via our website at SapphireLegal.com slash podcast and click on episode 12. I want to also thank our listeners, my radio angels, James and the Nave at Night, and Workplace Perspectives team extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Be sure to join us next week as we talk with C Digital Labs CEO Andre Berengian about the importance of creating a positive workplace culture in emerging startups. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective, and until next time, keep raising the bar.